You're listening to the Tepis Paranormal Talking Point Podcast, a show that discusses various aspects of the paranormal world, with paranormal news, ghost stories, interviews, and much more. And without further ado, let's get into some talking points. Hi guys, Scott here from Tepis Paranormal and welcome back to another episode of the Tepis Paranormal Talking Point Podcast. Today, my guest is Greg Lawson. Greg's also known online as the Paranormal Detective. Now, Greg has had a 30-plus year career in law enforcement and has also been in various military organisations, including the US Army, the US Navy and the US Air Force at various points. As we'll go on to learn, Greg has travelled around the world during his career, visiting over 40 countries worldwide. I got this chance to sit down with Greg and discuss a number of things. His interest in the paranormal, how he uses his law enforcement background to guide investigations and to implement law enforcement investigative techniques into his paranormal investigations, what he thinks about a number of different phenomenon and cases, some of the books he's written, and more. So, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, yeah, man, I'm late. Sorry about that. No worries. So, I guess, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Lawson. I am a uh, 30, almost 32-year uh, law enforcement uh, officer, uh, former detective. I'm now a director of training at a police academy in Texas. Um, and yes, I am driving right now and, uh, law enforcement were exempt <laughs> from not, not driving and doing this. So, uh, I, I have a, a, a plan here on a pullover and, and, uh, and do this. But anyway, so, um, throughout my life, uh, when I was a kid, my brother used to, uh, uh, harass me a lot and he was, uh, he was 12 years older than so when I was like five years old, he was 17 and he would take me out riding on his motorcycle with no helmet. Uh, and uh, we'd ride around and go to graveyards and abandoned buildings and things like that. And he would kind of he kind of introduced me to what would be later known as, you know, kind of paranormal investigations and urban exploration kind of thing. And I did that through all through, you know, my schooling. And then I went into the army. Uh, and whenever I was deployed, I was with the rapid deployment unit with 82nd Airborne Division. So I spent time in Central America, North Africa, Middle East. Um, and whenever we would go deployed like that and I would have any time off, I would do uh, a little bit of research. And back then, we didn't have the Internet. So you actually had to go to these things. They had these buildings called libraries. And you had to go there and there were these things called and you opened them up and they were, they were filled with paper and they had writings on them and you would do your research that way. And it was horrible because there wasn't a search bar. You know, you had to uh, use glossaries and indexes and references and cross-reference everything. Anyway, long story short, I would go to the weird places wherever we were uh, and kind of do a little bit of an investigation myself. But back then it wasn't a thing. You know, people weren't they didn't have podcasts and, and TV shows and, and that sort of stuff with it. So I have, you know, probably uh, two and a half decades of doing weird stuff with just a few photos and my memories, you know. And so that's kind of where it went. And 
when I was in law enforcement, um, I was a mental health investigator for a couple of years. So we would get called out on suicide calls. We were suicide mediators, hostage negotiators, and we would involve in critical incidents whenever somebody was having a uh, mental health uh, breakdown or a uh, uh, experiencing hallucinations and that sort of thing. So I would go and talk to people that had uh, demonic experiences, uh, alien abduction experiences, those sorts of things. And I really started getting really interested in uh, people's perspective and uh, their experience and whatever um, the circumstance was, right? So that really kind of got me on another side of doing the investigation because a lot of people are very um, pragmatic or dismissive of people uh, that have mental illness. And they will say, yeah, well, you know, they're just having hallucinations or delusions. Um, there's nothing to see here. And, you know, just because somebody is diagnosed with a mental illness doesn't mean what they perceive isn't necessarily happening. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, uh, druidic uh, followings in your world, and I look at the uh, uh, American Indians in the United States, um, people that had those experiences that psychologists and psychiatrists would call mentally ill today um, were people of reverence back then. They were people that people would go to and, and ask opinions and questions and uh, listen to their experience. So that, that really fascinated me a lot. So out of that, uh, I then wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Zombie Advocacy. Uh, and I got asked to go to uh, a few of these um, conventions to speak on that. And it was a satirical book. It wasn't supposed to be a serious book. It was supposed to be, you know, what would happen in the United States if we had zombies? Well, a whole bunch of attorneys would come out and they would advocate for them and seize their assets and manage them. And it would be a whole industry, right? Well, people took it a different way, and I just kind of went along that way. And when I was doing it, I was like, wait, all these TV shows and stuff, a lot of this stuff that people are doing, that's not the proper way to conduct an investigation. So I started getting more involved in the training aspect of it. Uh, and the best way to do that is to write books and um, make videos and, and do that sort of thing and speak mm -hmm. in some of these pictures. And so that's what I did. Um, and that's kind of leads me to your lap today. Cool. So, obviously, talking about your books, um, I've recently been reading How to Be a Paranormal Detective. Um, and obviously, in the first sort of, I'm only a couple of chapters into it, but in the first sort of couple of chapters, there's quite a lot of useful information. Um, but I think in the introduction, you talk about a, um, I think it's an animal medium. So yep. some the the animal medium who I think it was a tiger um that they communicate with in some way and obviously alter the tiger's behavior um and I found that really interesting from uh I have no idea how that could be possible it should in my mind it shouldn't be possible and yet like you say it happens right and I think that adds on to the whole, you know, perception thing. It varies on people's perception, as you were talking about before. 
it's kind of yeah it's kind of uh, when you see something happen you can say well um that's just what they do uh but like if you, if you look at some of the uh the animal behavior books uh let's say cats for instance uh they express a lot of their own emotions out of their tail uh and if you don't know that well you're not paying attention the cat doesn't have any facial expression so you're thinking that it's not yeah you know, it's just a cat that he looks around he attacks things he tries not to get attacked he eats and he sleeps that's what he does uh but once you do the studies or or the people that did do the studies uh and categorize that behavior and identify with that tail um it matters and and the same thing with horses um being in texas here there is a lot of debate on how you train and handle horses uh and if you it's funny how human beings will look at an animal that is much less sophisticated and less intelligent per se than we are. And we try to force it to understand our language yeah. instead of paying attention to the animal and learning their language. And I think that has a lot to do. I think some of the stuff I, I talk about in, in, in the book is <laughs> we should start trying to perceive what they're trying to communicate as opposed to force our communication upon them, whether it be animals or uh, if the afterlife uh, is there and if the afterlife can be communicated with, maybe we have to tune into their channel instead of ours. Yep. That, I mean, that makes yeah a lot of sense, like you say, from that perspective of why would we assume that it communicates in the same sort of way we do? Um, so I suppose one thing I want to ask is what are your paranormal beliefs? So I was raised Catholic, which means I'm now a recovering Catholic. Um, I have that upbringing, which whenever you're indoctrinated into something, it's hard to shake it all the way, you know? So, um, there are spiritual beliefs in the Catholic system that, um, you could disagree with, of course, uh, but there there are tenets that seem to be a good foundation for a lot of good things, for giving a good, uh, having a good life, and 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 being good, and you know, trying to do good things. Uh, but the whole transubstantiation thing of the Eucharist has always been a problem for me. That uh, for those that are listening that aren't real clear on it, if you're Catholic you believe that when the priest prays over the Eucharist, over the bread and uh, blood, or I'm sorry, the bread and wine, uh, that prayer that he says uh, creates transubstantiation and that, that actual piece of bread turns into the flesh of Christ and the wine turns into the blood of Christ. Um, and it's a faith thing. Uh, I don't believe that. And people say, well, that's just, uh, uh, it's symbolic. That's not really what's good. It's like, if you're Catholic, it can't be symbolic. Uh, that means you're Lutheran. <laughs> that means you're, you're Episcopalian. And you're, you're not Catholic anymore if you don't believe that. So I have a very strong um, spiritual background. And I'm more metaphysical, I guess, than... Uh, believing every 
you know, thing that tips over as a ghost or a demon or whatever. Um, there's, I have no doubt that there is something else going on. Um, and the people that know exactly what else is going on are probably the people we need to question the most. Yeah. Because it seems pretty damn mysterious to me. And if you don't have uh, physical um, evidence, uh, empirical, uh, the new word empirical evidence, um, it's kind of hard to prove something is, is, is happening. And, and that's one of those things in the paranormal world is you have a lot of people that are trying to use uh, technology to answer spiritual questions. And I don't know whether, I don't know how well that translates. Uh, on top of that, um, I don't even know whether we, we know what the translation is. Uh, and, and so when you're trying to use the scientific method on this stuff, well, that's all based on repeatability. Well, most of the paranormal experiences that people have do not repeat at all, ever. Yeah. Uh, the exact same way. Um, and so it's, I, I believe that there is a veil that we can't see through, just like uh, we can't see beta particles and alpha particles and infrared and ultraviolet. We, we can't see this huge amount of um, spectrum out there other than what we can see, which is the visual spectrum, our visual spectrum. We see that, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on all around us right now. And if we could actually perceive everything that's going on around us, uh, it would, I, I would guess it would be something like a snowstorm that I couldn't even see my phone in front of me because there would be so many particles mm -hmm. flying around. So we really don't know what's going on. In that, obviously, you mentioned the different tools that are used for paranormal uh, investigation and paranormal, I guess, communication. Um, so I, I understand from, again, from your book that you are more of a believer in the, you know, the person themselves being the tool as opposed to relying on uh, everything else. Well, that's what it seems like to me because um, a, a lot of these tools that people are using are gadgets. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're adapted from something else. Um, and that, that something else that they're adapted from is typically uh, designed to do something else, like uh, w whatever that might be. And they're, they're kind of adapting it to it. Um, and they're trying to make it more interesting because uh, doing ghost hunting is incredibly boring. Oh, my God. You know, and so let's put some lights on it. Let's put some, some, you know, let's make it make some noises. Let's make it move. Let's do something to make this a little bit more interactive, a little bit more entertaining. Because uh, honestly, I mean, if we were looking for, uh, you know, some sort of disruption in electromagnetic field or whatever like that, we would be using better equipment than a K2 meter. You know, it's, it's a gadget that we use. I use K2 meters, but I use it to pick up all of the ambient, uh, um, you know, EMF that's in a room, mm -hmm. 
generated from a microwave oven or a uh, you know fluorescent light bulb ballast or something like that. Okay. Um, so obviously you mentioned that you have had a 30 plus year um, career in law enforcement. You've also been in various military branches. Um, during your time in that, would you say you've experienced anything paranormal while sort of on duty? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Do um, you have any sort of examples of that? So, um, one of the ones, uh, actually I wrote about it, I, I just released a book, uh, the book went live on Amazon yesterday. Uh, I'll do my first, um, I'll do my first, um, my, my first book signing in Michigan next, next week, week and a half from now. And, uh, the first thing I start off with is a, um, it is a call that I had when I was working mental health. Uh, and I, um, I had, I, I was working as a hostage negotiator at the time. And the, the person that we were out on was a mother that had her kid uh, and was threatening to kill her kid. Okay. So I, I talk about that and uh, my interaction with her was very unusual. And I believe that uh, it would make sense that it was because um there was some sort of intervention that happened. I don't know what that intervention was, but uh, I ended up, when I arrived at the scene, I didn't talk to any of the police officers there. Normally, when you arrive at the scene, you, you, uh, um, you know, you get some sort of briefing. And that didn't happen. I just got out, walked straight to the apartment, walked up the third floor. I could see her out on the, balcony there's cops everywhere i i walk over there i walk into the apartment i walk out onto the balcony where she and her baby is she hands me the baby i hand the baby to the cop i give her a hug and we walked out i put her in the car and i took her to the state hospital mm -hmm. we didn't at all i didn't talk to anybody on scene i didn't talk to anybody. and it seemed all normal everything seemed normal when i did it until afterwards it was like what just happened very bizarre you know mm -hmm. and uh and so that was that was probably the strangest thing that ever happened okay uh, yeah. cool so again in your um across your times you know in the various branches of the military and law enforcement you i understand you've traveled to a lot of locations over 40 countries yes and obviously in that time I know you visited a lot of sort of the stranger locations in those countries. Um, a lot of, I guess, haunted locations, locations well known for UFOs and that sort of thing. Um, are there any sort of real standouts for you? Any that, you know, you particularly enjoyed or any that you think about a lot? Um, so there was, uh, I was, I was with a pararescue unit when I was up in Alaska uh, and I was going through a a class that we had. It was called uh, ASAP class. It's Arctic Subarctic Aquatic Pararescue. 
and we were doing a certification down on a, a Kodiak Island. We were down there for about three weeks uh, and we were, you know, swimming in the water every day. Now we had, uh, we had a, a few days of wetsuits just so we could get kind of uh, the idea that it's not a good idea to have a wetsuit. Uh, and then we were using dry suits and, but it was still cold. And I spent a lot of time in the water, exposed in the water. Uh, after that um, class, I ended up doing some research before I went down there. And anyway, while I was there, I did some research at their little historical society building uh, and found out a bunch of stuff about the Russians when they were there and that there was a massacre that happened on a place called Refuge Rock. It's uh, uh, a little further south uh, than where I was. And it was on a, uh, it's called Sitkaladak Island. It's um, uh, close to an old pla uh, place called Old Harbor. Okay. And so I ended up um, getting what we call an Alaska Uber. This is 1984, I guess, which is the least drunk guy at the airport. Uh, would <laughs> You know, you pay him 40 bucks, he flies you to the next airport. So I ended up, uh, uh, I got off uh, halfway through Friday, uh, went and got my Uber and flew to uh, Old Harbor. And uh, the next day, got a boat out to sit Kaladak, and I had to hike about five miles uh, over to where there's a beach that you could see Refuge Rock. And that's mm -hmm. where the Russians chased all the indigenous people of the um, uh, Alutig people uh, to Refuge Rock, which is about 300 yards off shore. Uh, and they, they ran up on that rock. There's anywhere from 200 to 2,000 of them, depending on um estimates and the russians took their ships on either side of it and just can't just covered it with cannon uh and uh killed a whole bunch of them and the rest of them that uh either got captured or surrendered were then taken into slavery uh okay. this was in the 1700s and so i went to that location uh and once again kind of that spiritual metaphysical experience of i was drawn there and I'm, I'm by myself i'm like 20 years old i'm by myself out in the middle of nowhere man this is literally nowhere yeah and um so i decided to swim out to the rock it's only about 300 yards uh and i started waiting and i made it up maybe about 100 yards offshore there's like an underwater road when the when the the tide is down. You can mm -hmm. it's maybe five feet deep or something like that. And it started getting really deep. And I started thinking about the animals in the water. And then I'm out there by myself and it just got really weird. And I got chicken and I turned around and I went back to the beach and found a, a place out of the wind and started a fire and dried my clothes. And um, that whole time I was thinking that I, I was really drawn to it in a, uh, like you, you see the movies of people that are possessed and they're going to stick their hand in the fire. Yeah. It was like that. I didn't make it. I didn't have, I didn't have an, I wasn't brave enough to, to do the rest. Mm -hmm. of it. I just, yeah. Yeah. So like you say, it's the, I guess it's that almost not thinking about the consequence, ignoring the consequences, I guess you would say, ignoring the dangers because yeah. you're so sort of drawn to the specific sort of area. 
Tepes Paranormal is now an official partner of Wraith Energy. Wraith is a powdered energy formula which is mixed with water, naturally flavoured and packed with B vitamins, antioxidants and amino acids. The special formula delivers its energy kick evenly to eliminate jitters, keeping you in control. And by heading to drinkwraith.com and using discount code TEPIS, you can get 10% off all purchases. Are there any places that you know about that you've not been that you'd like to go? Yeah, um, I, I wanted. I would love to go dive Truck Lagoon. Um, it's a, uh, an area where in World War II, uh, a lot of ships were sank. Uh, and uh, I, I would love to go there. I want to go to, uh, you, know, you know, there's a lot of these uh, paranormal places, but I seem to have better experiences at places that maybe don't have such a high expectation of paranormal activity. I really want to go to, to, uh, um, I had, I had some, uh, ancestors, uh, and grandfathers that, uh, fought in the Napoleonic Wars in, uh, uh from Britain and were mm-hmm. in Portugal. Uh, and oddly enough, I have some cousins in Portugal. So imagine that, I don't know what they were doing. Uh, but they were, uh, they were friendly to the indigenous people there, uh, during the war. Uh, and I really would like to go there. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've got to go to some amazing places, uh, Hunador Castle in Romania and, you know, uh, Ponari, uh, uh, Dracula, you know, uh, Vlad the Impaler's Castle and just yeah. like that. But, um, you know, going to the Roman Colosseum is just amazing. And there's not that many ghost stories from there. You, you hear some people talk about it, but you talk to the, the regular uh, people that are certified um, you know, historians and tourists and stuff, there's not that much you would think if there's any place that's full of ghosts, it would be there. So it's just odd that the places that they do kind of show their show their faces. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that's something that doesn't get brought up a lot, is that obviously if ghosts are real and, you know, if ghosts are what, I guess, what we think they are to a degree which is, you know, spirits that are either associated to somebody that's died or associated to a negative event, um, then I think by those definitions, they're going to be everywhere, not just in places that people think are, you know, highly active. It's, yeah, I think it's, you know, places like the Colosseum that you don't really hear ghost stories from per se. It's like, why would there not be things there throughout its history? Right. Um, so have you ever seen anything, you know, sort of, I don't want to say the stereotypical kind of ghost, but you know, the sort of shadow or even like an apparition or something to that effect? Secondarily. Uh, and I say that, um, you know, you have primary evidence that, uh, you can touch, feel and do all that. Uh, and then you have, uh, let's say, photographic evidence or um, audio evidence or something like that. Uh, I have been places to where I've been with people that have taken audio um, recordings, video recordings, and photography uh, that we turn around and look at and go, what in the world is that? Now, EVP work, you know, it depends on what you're recording on, where you are, ambient noise, the whole bit. Um, Pareidolia with uh, uh, 
you know, audio files is very common. Um, so, man, but uh, like we, we were, uh, I was with Dave Schrader uh, and we were in Ireland and we went to uh, Lep Castle. And we uh, spent most of the day there doing recordings and, and uh, EVP stuff. And I did it back then. I was doing a lot of a uh, lot of video, uh, huge video files. And I would go back through them and spend days and days going back through those, that stuff. Uh, we I didn't get anything. I'm up in the bloody, bloody chapel. I, I didn't get anything. Uh, second floor looking for the red lady. Wasn't getting anything. But the bloody chapel, I was, I was primarily... Uh, you know, looking for the quote unquote priest uh, where Teague and Thaddeus uh, got into a fight and, you know, uh, murder happened. So I didn't really get anything. And then we went downstairs and we were talking to the, the castle owner, Sean and Ann, uh, and he played us some music and told us some cool, you know, just contemporary stories, nothing about ghosts, just about the area and just amazing. And so, we were leaving. Uh, as we were leaving, people are taking pictures. And halfway across the yard, one of our friends, Tammy Cote, takes a picture of the front of the castle. Uh, Sean and Ann are standing in the front. And we leave. And about two weeks later, Tammy calls me up and goes, look at this picture. And so she sends me the picture. And there is a priest standing in the window above Sean and Ann. And there's no doubt that's what it is. And you can sit there and go, wow, well, that must be uh, some reflection off the glass of some trees and a cloud. And the cloud looked like a priest. It's like, here's the deal, dude. What was I looking for when I went there? A priest. Yeah. Spent my whole time. Couldn't find it. Left. What is the pareidolia in the window? Because you, you look at the window, nobody would go, oh, that's a waiter. Oh, that's a bartender. Oh, that's a, a mechanic. No, it's a priest, man. And if anything else, like, all right, well, if the rules are they can't show themselves right to you and go, hey, I really am here. Mm -hmm. Then they go by that that uh, Beetlejuice book of rules. Um, and, you know, you're sitting there going, all right, well, is there the secondary thing that they can do like uh, this gobbledygook through EVP work or yeah. these pareidolic images and glass? Well, maybe that's the only way they can do that. Uh, and there, there's a, a faith based part of that. It's like, Oh, well that's gotta be what it is, but you can get the very pragmatic skeptics say, well, it's just pareidolia. It's just whatever this was. Well, I go back to what's a miracle. Well, you know, one in a million things happening. Mm -hmm. Well, that image in that window could have been one in a million things other than a priest. Yeah. It could have been a vase. It could have been a car. It could have been a bird. could have been, it was a priest in there. And I can show it to anybody without saying, and I, I've tried this a bunch. Hey, I'm going to show you a picture. You tell me what you see. Well, it looks like a priest. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You know, so. Cool. Um, do you find that in your line of work, your opinion sort of makes things seem more credible in the eyes of others? Sure. Yeah. Like, 
I guess, obviously, because you are very focused on investigative technique and, you know, how to investigate efficiently, I guess, and correctly. That and experience in interpreting uh, Mm -hmm. the outcome of whatever that is. Um, You know, when the the scary thing in uh, in any kind of uh, like investigation, especially uh, one where you could be arrested, is uh, an investigator that steps in, takes a snapshot picture of what's going on and says, I know what happened. You know, it needs to be a little bit more like Sherlock Holmes, where you're picking up multiple clues and then forming your opinion based on those those pieces of evidence and circumstances. Um, And you see a lot of people that will try to force in their belief system into the evidence and bend it to it and you know being the interpretation of what they want it to be as opposed to following the evidence there is a point to where there needs to be interpretation and a call that okay this is what this is based on my training and experience this is what what this is uh and so if it's not if it's not paranormal it's not paranormal so that's why when you see some of these tv shows it's great where they will see a video and then they'll go to that location and try to recreate it see if they can get you know this thing to do whatever it is on this wall based on the way the curtains are drawn and a car driving by and then all of a sudden yeah. there's a face um that's great work when people do stuff like that um so I think that, uh, I mean, I've been doing something, getting paid to do something for 32 years. Uh, I've developed something outside of just what the book says. Uh, And there is a artistic license in the interpretation of what it might be or what it might not be. Um, But if it's not paranormal, it's just not. So. Yeah. I I tend to find that is one of the, big things you find with I guess investigative groups to a degree is they'll go somewhere, something will happen and it is because they have gone there with the intention of looking for something paranormal they attribute it to being paranormal without any real sort of I guess debunking of the event. So you know if they go in somewhere and something falls off a shelf um, it's immediately a spirit or a ghost has knocked that off a shelf. It's not the shelf might be wonky. There might be a dodgy floorboard that when you stand on it, it, you know, vibrates the shelf. And I think that is one of the sort of key things is, I guess a lot of the paranormal field is debunking as much as it is, you know, actively trying to find things. It's also trying to disprove the things you have found. Right. Yeah. And, and also carrying what I mentioned earlier and carrying your belief system into an investigation um, in relations and, and also in education, there's the, what, what is classified as the babes, which is um, um, it's, it's your beliefs uh, and expectations that uh, can guide your perception on something. So mm-hmm. if you, into something believing a certain thing that certain thing may manifest itself to you um, 
just based on your experience, right? I mean, there's there's very few scientific method uh, or there's very few methodologies in science that require less light. <laughs> and it seems in paranormal investigation, we want to be in the dark. And it's very odd. And I and people I get get people asking me that all the time. Well, why are you running around in the dark? You know, aren't ghosts around in the daytime too? You know, I'm like, I don't know whether they are or not, but let's say it takes a lot of power uh, to be seen from the other side through this veil that we're talking mm-hmm. about. And if they don't have very much power, um, you know, maybe you can't see them. But if this power is manifested somehow in illumination uh, and is very low, well, you need all the bright lights off around you in order to pick it up. Yeah. So there, there, I just took my values and assumptions on what this is and created a, a hypothesis saying, well, maybe this is what it is. Um, yeah. As you get more experiences in the dark, you're also at a heightened state of awareness of the dark. Your amygdalas are going crazy. Your pupils are dilated. You're taking in more light, et cetera, et cetera. So all this is adding to this experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, on obviously on the whole in the dark thing, um, it's a question that I've been asked a few times as well, which is why do ghosts only come out in the dark? And it is that argument of what well, they don't, but if I'm going to look for something, I want it to be a when it's quiet in the world outside. You know, if you're searching for something in a random house, you know, you think there might be something there, you're doing an investigation and there's rush hour traffic going by constantly outside because it's five o'clock in the afternoon. That's obviously going to hinder your results to a degree because you're not going to be able to focus on and look for the more subtle, I guess, stuff that happens because you're going to have that constantly in the background. Right. Um, so yeah, I always find that question of you know why do things happen or why do ghosts only come out in the dark? It's like I think the investigations happen in the dark for a number of reasons, but the amount of paranormal sort of stories and claims and just general uh, events you hear from people tend to happen during the day when people are least expecting it. I find right. No, that's true. The random stuff. Um... I think uh, when people do uh, research on something and say, oh, there's a lady in white that is at Kinsale, Ireland at uh, Charles Fort. And so you go there and you spend all your time looking around for the lady in white. And you're focused in on that. Uh, oftentimes, I believe that you might be missing all the other ladies in green and blue and yellow. And, you know, because your your expectations when you go there, you want to see this thing that other people have experienced. I experienced that I was in Hong Kong and I went to Fan Lao Fort uh, out on, uh, um, uh, it, it's away from Lantu, it's on Lantu Island, but it's away from the main area of it. And it's an old pirate fort. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I'm looking for ghosts and I'm looking for the graveyard that, that was there. Uh, and I'm, I spent hours there and this blue bird was jacking around with me the whole time, kind of a bluish green bird. Uh, as soon as I got there, he came and landed down on the ground and was jumping around at my feet and jumping everywhere. And I equated him to what's called a kildee in uh, Texas. 
Kildy is this little kind of a white and brown and black bird that looks very similar to a seagull, but smaller mm-hmm. okay. and has longer skinny legs and they run around on the ground. Uh, and when you're close to their nest, they will run around and act like they're hurt and try to draw you away from their nest to keep you away from their babies. And they're very overt about doing it. And I thought maybe this bird was doing that. That's how crazy this bird was acting. Uh, and I was just kind of, yeah, it's a cool bird. Look at him. What's, up? What's wrong with him? And then I went on looking for my ghost and spent a few hours there. The bird's jacking with me the whole time, flying around. I go, the fort's not that big, uh, but it's not, it's, I don't know, uh, 50 yards long, maybe. And, uh, and it's kind of cleared out around there. It's got trees where it's not cleared and the bird messing in the trees, come back to me, going back and forth. I spent a whole lot of time looking for ghosts and looking for all this other stuff. And I leave, uh, nothing happened. Uh, and a few years later, I'm doing some research and, um, the spirits there send a blue bird to send you a message. Uh, and idiot here <laughs> wasn't paying attention to the message mm-hmm. that they were because of my expectations. Yeah. Because you were looking for a ghost, yeah. not looking for yeah other things. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's let's say it's very, it's a very interesting sort of point to think about. I guess is the going into something and trying to sort of stay open to anything to a degree. Um, but yeah, I think that is a very valid point of you know you go in there very much fixated on one thing, one outcome, and something different happens and you miss it because that's not what you're looking for. Right. Um, so I want to ask you about UFOs as well, because I know you have an interest in those, um, specifically Roswell. Yep. So you have a book um, which is called Roswell, the After Action Report. Right. Um, could you talk a little bit about that talk a little bit about Roswell, your interest in it, etc. Sure. So uh my wife had a friend of hers that went to school out there in New Mexico. Um and I had always been interested in Roswell. I was really interested when they uh um you know put out the Roswell report back in ninety four. I actually read that. Uh it was just a bunch of gibberish. They just they were did a horrible job on it. And that's the the U.S. military, the Air Force did that. Um, and it, it it's so it's done so poorly. It's like wow, this is a heck of a cover up because it's just done so poorly, you know. And they covered it with so much stuff that didn't have. It's it's almost a thousand pages long, and maybe twenty two pages of that thousand pages matter. <laughs> the rest of it is just nothing. So they mm-hmm. put this big together to make it look like they did a big investigation and all they did was make a bunch of copies of paper um and so um lynn my wife uh, and i we would go visit her friend out there in roswell and we realized that they were doing the roswell um um the the paracon there and actually don't call it a paracon or the ufo conference mm-hmm. there on fourth of july weekend every year and uh, that's the weekend that 
the crash was reported in 1947. So they correlate it with that. And it's great, man. There's, there's all kinds of stuff to do. There's good food, cool people, fun stuff to do. And a lot of uh, Roswell investigators doing talks and the museum and all that. So we would go up there a lot and I started doing research on that. And Lynn was like, you need to write a book on this. Um, I have uh, four years, I have four years um, experience, well, in total, including my reserve time with the army, six years. I was an infantry parachutist and, uh, and I worked when I was up in Alaska with the pararescue team. Uh, and then I went in the Navy for four years as an operations specialist. Uh, and then I did two years Air Force Reserves, which I was deployed active duty some of that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I have a solid background in military operations. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I, I, I need to, I do need to do this. I'm always been very interested in ufos and stuff like that so i did that and it's called the after action report because in the u.s military we do what's called an after action report on when we conduct training do the training and then you do the after action report of what the training was uh how everybody performed how we should change it what what we should do next time same thing with a mission you do a debriefing right same thing yeah so um that's what this is and it's a uh, approach from going back to who are the real people involved in this? Uh, what did they do? How did the investigation go? Why did it turn out the way it did? And then I examined the way that they wrote, uh, the Air Force wrote the release in 1994 of the of their, what would be an after action report. Or, and, uh, um, and I use contemporary means of statement analysis uh, from the FBI on how to prove that the Air Force is still lying to us. It's crazy. It's crazy. So they're still using cover-up on this thing, and it makes no sense because there's nothing that should be uh, classified after 70 years, except there's like three things. Um, And so, and I'm not saying they're they're lying about the UFO crash and we got aliens. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're lying about, but they're still lying. So, you know. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Obviously, in the news recently, there's been a lot of sort of UFO and alien kind of stuff. Um, There's been obviously a lot of, I think, is it Congress in the States has been doing a lot of sort of UFO stuff. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's really interesting. I think it's unfortunate that they're, they're wasting a whole lot of time on other stuff that they should be doing. Um, although this could be really important. Um, they've passed a, a couple of new laws, uh, opened up a couple of new uh, departments uh, that their job is to gather this information and actually responsible for get, conducting an investigation, excuse me, basically creating a clearinghouse for these incidents. Mm-hmm. And taking it seriously and uh and they're giving them timelines to look at the stuff to determine whether it's national security threat this national security threat we're never going to see it uh until 70 years later uh, and maybe not even then uh but if it's something else then uh the idea is they will have disclosure on that well if there are aliens and we don't know what they're doing that's national security threat so it doesn't matter what uh, agencies or what laws we throw out there, 
we're still going to have classification problems on, you know, is this a national security issue? And if it is, we're not releasing the information. It's no, nobody's business. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about it. It's interesting that, um, um, you know, after that came out, all of a sudden we had all these balloon threats, right? Yeah. All these balloons are popping up everywhere that nobody saw before. Well, one of the reasons that nobody saw before is because, uh, for those of you that don't know that uh, an operations specialist, what I did, I specialized in using electronic means to collect information, disseminate, uh, and interpret that information, then disseminate it to parties that need to know. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, is using radar. Uh, and when you essentially tune your radar, like tuning a radio, um, you're tuning out clutter. You're turning, tuning out static that is interpreted on a visual screen, right? So if we're uh, in a ship and we're out on the ocean and there is a storm over there, uh, it can come across as a radar contact. So you identify that it is a storm using other means to identify it. Uh, and then you use your tuning medium to make that storm go away on your screen and only focus on the stuff that's important. Yeah. Like an airplane or a, a flying saucer. But a balloon is uh, doesn't reflect as well. So you might tune out all the balloons. So that's what's happened with a lot of these radars is they've, they tune out uh, flocks of birds or uh, thick clouds, squalls, stuff like that. They tune that out well, when they do that and they leave their settings that way, they're tuning out balloons as well. So now everybody's got to turn their squelch down a little bit and start picking up all these balloons and we start Oh, there's a balloon there, there's a balloon there, there's a balloon there. Yep. Uh, so it, it happened right after all that changed. Um, causation doesn't mean correlation on that, but I think it had something to do with it. And now all of a sudden, we're not getting all these balloon reports again. Mm -hmm. So either the balloons aren't there, or they have then classified them as a national security thing, and we're not going to hear about them. Yep or they're not picking them up so okay um so are you familiar with any sort of ufo cases in other countries around the world uh a little bit um i primarily concentrate on um some some alien abduction stuff because mm -hmm. of the work as a mental health officer yeah uh roswell uh, I've been to the UK's Roswell. Would that be Rendlesham by any chance? That's right. That's yes, right. that's the one I was hoping you were going to talk about. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, Dave, actually, I was there with Dave Schrader and, and uh, quite a few other people. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was a lot of fun. That was uh, that was a beautiful area over there. So is, yeah. So, do you know much about the sort of Rendlesham as a whole? No, it's, it's, well, it's, and it's very much like, um, it's reminiscent of Roswell in the fact that, um, there's a couple of reports of lights in the sky. Um, there's some solid reports from military people saying, I saw something 
that doesn't make sense. Uh, and then everything kind of goes away. And that's one of those things where, um, you know, a murder could happen someplace and you get rid of the body and it's like, okay, how do you recreate what happened here? If nobody saw it, uh, there's no trace evidence. Um, you know, how, how do you recreate this thing? And it's the same thing here. You have a couple of enlisted people that, um, have very different experiences when you interview them separately of what the aircraft or what the object looked mm -hmm. like, what they felt from it. Uh, um, you know, the, the commission officer that was involved, uh, his, uh, his testimony seems pretty, pretty solid as far as, you know, he's, he's not given a lot of details, some lights, didn't look right, didn't know what it was, and there you are. Um, so, yeah, Rendlesham is really interesting uh, uh, for the simple fact that I don't know that much about UFO reports in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, but the United States, we have a lot of them. And, uh, and I think the... I think the good uh, investigations that they've done on Rendlesham uh, and the interviews is about as good as you, you're going to get on that until they find the giant acorn or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, whether it be something that fell out of space and then wasn't supposed to be there or you guys were practicing with something and it crashed or somebody else sent something over mm -hmm. as a drone kind of thing and it crashed. I firmly believe it was something and somebody has it. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually going to Rendlesham later this week, which is why I sort of, you know, wanted to see if you had any sort of insights on that. Um, so there's a group of us going there to do some, you know, some investigation-y bits. Um, Rendlesham's also supposed to have quite a lot of paranormal sort of ghost activity within it. Right. Um, there's also a cryptid that apparently is within the forest there. So it's going to be quite a good time just, you know, investigating, trying to see what we can find. Um, and that does bring me on to, I think, my last question for you, which is, um, obviously your latest book is Messages from Mothman. Right. Uh, interpretations of premonitions and other paranormal experiences. Um... Obviously, the Mothman part of that. Are you a believer in cryptids? Oh, absolutely. They're, I mean, that's that's cryptids are only cryptids until we prove that they're uh, an animal. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the giant squid is. I use that every time. Yeah. Uh, everybody said, "Oh, they're drunk sailors. They don't know what they're talking about." Uh, they said they saw that other ship get attacked by a giant squid, and that's how it sank. That's all. God, you know, it's nothing. Uh, those guys are all drunk, which they were. Hey, cheers, being a, an old sailor, yeah. Uh, you had to be because uh, if you didn't cut your water with alcohol, they it grows bugs in it. And then you drink it, and the bugs eat all the bugs in your intestines, and you get dysentery, and you get <laughs> you die. So you have to have alcohol on board. Yeah. Uh, unless you have, you know, some other way to make your water and uh, and they didn't so that's that's what that happened and so everybody thinks it's nothing 
And then all of a sudden, a scientist goes, hey, look at this giant squid. I got one. Oh, now he's something. So the Kraken turned into something real. Yeah. Uh, and I firmly believe, I mean, you know, stuff that's in the water. Sorry, we're still finding that stuff. We're still finding stuff in, in people's backyards. Yeah. So, um, absolutely. Was there a, uh, uh, a Bigfoot? Is there a Bigfoot? Um, contemporary um, scientists that study sociology, study anthropology, study zoology will say that the United States is large enough to house a population of Bigfoot of about 500 and we would never see that. Mm -hmm. They were smart. And that's the thing is everybody treats them like he's a primate or treats them like um, there's, you know, just some animal. Maybe that's not what he is. Um, maybe they are the hairy men that, that they, they called in, in Alaska, the tornets. Um, and they really do have a, you know, they're very, very intelligent. And the, the, the history in Alaska is, uh, the, the hairy people and the, what would be the Eskimos or the Aleuts, the Inuits, um, the indigenous people of Alaska traded with them. They had a relationship with them. And the story is a teenager Inuit person uh, had a canoe and a young hairy man stole the canoe and the human killed him. And at that point, the community of hairy people disappeared into the woods and they never saw him again, except for little glimpses here and there. And that's their one tribe's story of why we have Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. They don't call them Bigfoot. They call them Sasquatch or Tornit or there's some other names for them. Um, but and you, you, you talk to the people that, you know, spend enough time to get a PhD in zoology or anthropology. And they say, yeah, that, that could happen. I shrugged my shoulders and go, okay, because... We know that we had very large ape-like creatures uh, in Africa, in mm -hmm. North Europe, Central Europe. Um, they don't find a lot of that over here in the United States, but that doesn't mean uh, yeah. we're not going to, or maybe they just disintegrated. You know, when they they didn't bury them, and so they just were eaten by other animals, mm -hmm. and they just went away. But yeah. yes, Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I recently spoke to uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Uh, and he, you know, um, was talking about that specifically, the, you know, how if they were a sort of small population, they could very easily in the United States exist and just be hidden or be, you know, difficult to find. Um there was a very sort of interesting point he raised towards the end of the interview I did with him where he spoke about um, how often you find a bear carcass. Yeah. Well, which yeah. is, you know, and bears are obviously a much higher population than the reported or supposed Bigfoot would be. So right. I guess it scales. Yeah, I was just I was just up in the Cascade Mountains a couple of weeks ago 
I've been up there twice in the last two years uh, working on a documentary on an avalanche that happened up there in 1910, killed uh, almost 100 people on a train. Um, And so it's a paranormal documentary, historical documentary of what happened, how Mm -hmm. many people died, why there's not more hauntings. There's, There's practically no reports of ghosts in that area. Uh, but in that area, there's got to be a Bigfoot out there, man. It is crazy rugged. Uh, it is a place that is just amazing. Uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, and you could easily go out there. As a human, you could go out there. If you could figure out how to feed yourself and not get scurvy, um, you could live out there for years. And nobody would ever see you. Yeah. Yeah, I know that is obviously you hear a lot of stories of sort of wild men, people that venture off into large woodlands and just disappear and right. live off the land, live there for, you know, years. Um so it I think it fully is possible and it's in my eyes it's very likely as well. I think the fact that we're still discovering new creatures regularly, um, sea creatures as well, like you said, so much of the oceans on in unexplored uh the chance of there being something there that matches you know mermaids for example um they're one in my mind that you know so much of the ocean being unexplored i feel that there must be something that would match that description that has probably been seen in the past and you know maybe may still get seen to this day right that you know we don't know what it is nope um but yeah I think that brings us to the end of the questions I had. Um, right. So if there's anything you want to mention now? No, if uh, you can always find my stuff at theparanormaldetective.com or greglawson.org. Um, I have uh, my books are available on Amazon, on my website. Uh, and let's see, I'll be speaking in Michigan um, in about two weeks, the Michigan Paracon. And then at Phenomicon, I should see uh, Dr. Meldrum there at Phenomicon in uh, in uh, Salt Lake, or no, in, in Vernal, Utah. Uh, Michigan Paracon is in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so I appreciate you having me on and uh, no enjoy. Perfect. Um, yes, thank you so much for joining me, and I'll catch you later. And once again, I'd like to say a big thank you to Greg for taking the time out to join me for this interview. I found what Greg was saying to be very interesting, and I think we covered a number of really interesting topics. I'd love to know what you think of Greg, what you think of what we discussed. You can find links to all of Greg's socials, to his website, and to his books in the description of the YouTube version of this podcast. But for now, I've been Scott from Tepper's Paranormal, and I'll see you soon.